Okay, good morning again, folks. We're going to be turning to Luke chapter 5 this morning. You know, it amazes me how a church works. Not, not, not like structurally, okay? I am familiar with how a church works in terms of that. But I, I, I love and I'm amazed by how God brings people together. Uh, you look at our own church, you've got people of different backgrounds, different political opinions, different uh, income levels, different social spheres, different ages, different abilities, different interests. And yet, okay, I mean, that rarely happens in our society at all now. That rarely happens. We hardly see it. And yet God brings us together and then says, okay, you guys are one body. You are a church, you are a family, and you are united work together for a common goal and a common purpose. What is that goal? What is that purpose? To worship God and to do so in such a way, to be in awe of Him in such a way, to live that out in such a way that it compels others to join us in doing the same and worshiping God as Savior and the Redeemer. That's what it means. And how God does this is so far removed from how anyone else would think of doing it. Have a think. How would you go about pulling people together to, to perform the most important task on, in the universe? What would be the criteria that you would pull from? How would you go about that? It's still January. It feels like it's January the 722nd or something. It's, it's been going on forever. But we've been coming down all this with New Year with uh, top tips for new musicians for the next year or for the next decade or technology trends or, or films to look out for. And, and with all these lists and all these lists, who's most likely to succeed? Who's most likely to change the world? Who's most likely to break through? But it seems to me as though our Lord ignores the lists of the most educated and the most resources and the most gifted and goes to the often ignored list of least likely to succeed. And he picks his team from that list. And this is one of the most wonderful and encouraging things. Can we knock that on, please? 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Who does he go to? Moses, the 80-year-old murderer with a speech impediment. Old Jerry Jaw was going to be the voice before the Pharaoh. Come on, really, really? Speak my words, Moses. Can't. Yes, you can, Moses. I will speak through you, and I've chosen the foolish things of this world. You're perfect. Another one that comes to mind. What about Gideon? Gideon was one of the judges of Israel, but he was so scared of the Midianite, he wouldn't even uh, go to the threshing floor for his wheat, but he hid down in the valley in the wine press. So can you imagine this guy? There's no wind down there. Uh, and so he throws the wheat up in the air, uh, and he wants it to, the, the wind to come through, and he whoosh, whoosh. Oh, that didn't work very well. So he throws it up again, trying to get the chaff separated. And then the angel appears and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. I hate that on. But was he being sarcastic, the angel? Or maybe the angel was speaking to the man who he would be. Who he would be when the Lord gets a hold of his life and uses him and shapes him. And he becomes obedient to him. Because that is so like our Lord. Not to see who we once were. Not to focus on who we are right now. But who we can be when he gets a hold in our life. And molds us and shapes us for his purposes. 
That's what great artists do. That's what great sculptors do. That's what great potters do. They don't see the lump of clay in front of them, or they don't see the lump of wood or the lump of stone or the lump of metal, whatever it is that they're working with. But they see the masterpiece that's in there. They see, they see what can be, and they're locked in on that. And so they work persistently, they work consistently towards revealing what is there. Because the masterpiece is there. Just sometimes it takes time to reveal it. And I think when we come to Luke chapter 5 this morning, we can add to those lists of names of Abraham and Moses and Gideon the name Levi or or Matthew. He goes by Matthew in his own book, Matthew, but uh, here in Luke we get his tribal name of, of Levi. So let's read verse 27. Can we click on there, please? It's not working for me. Uh, After this, he went out, Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi is a tax collector, which means he is hated. Simple as that. Uh, He probably has Roman soldiers around about him. He probably has other tax collectors, and they're in a row kind of along the main main road here. And uh, it means that you can't get past them. You can't sort of work your way around them. You have to get in. You have to pay your taxes. And uh, his life would be in real danger. That's why they stayed together. The tax collectors found safety in numbers. That means the Roman soldiers only had to guard. They, They could send less out to guard a group of them. Now, it's not just because he was a tax collector, all right? Although, let's be honest, no one loves the tax man, all right? You know, no one ever thinks, oh, that's, I get to pay my taxes to you. <laughs> you know, the only th- I just wish I could pay more. That's, I just think, oh, if only I could pay more tax, that, that would make me so much happier. No, of course not. And, and it's bad enough whenever our tax men are representing democratically elected governments. But Levi here is working for the Romans. The Romans who came in, who killed men and women, relations, family members who took children off to become slaves in the empire. Levi's working for them. He's taking his own people's money to fund the enemy. And it goes from bad to worse. But the real twist is that no one is making him do this. You you weren't forced or coerced into being a tax collector. It was a job you applied for. You had to go to the Romans and say, listen, do you need someone to to collect that? Can can I get the franchise for for this route? Can Can I work that area? Can I work that street? And so you were able then, if you got the job, to extract the amount that room required, which was heavier than what any of us have to pay, I promise you. But if you got anything extra, and you often find ways of getting extra, you could keep that for yourself, and you're able to skim off the top. So because of that, tax collectors are considered scum, absolute scum. You can't get lower than a tax collector. They work for the enemy. They rob from their own people on top of that. One suggestion for the name change from Levi to Matthew is that, and I'll give you another reason in a minute, but one theory is that because his birth name, Levi, which is so tied in with the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe of Israel, that that, um, 
because it's so tied in then with, with the priesthood and upright living and goodness, he changed it to find some sort of inner peace. Don't call me Levi. That's not who I am. I don't want to be associated with that anymore. Just, just call me Matthew. All right, I don't want anything to do with that name. I don't want anything to do with that group of people. That's not who I am. Don't associate me with that. Call me, Levi. Uh, call me Matthew. Maybe it's because his parents tried to push him into the, the ministry and uh, it didn't really rub, rub with him. Or, or maybe he got into a bad crowd whenever he was in high school, you know, and his friends led him astray. And somewhere along the line, he decided, you know what, forget the ministry. I'd rather make money. And he gets disillusioned with religion. He gets disillusioned with the system. Maybe something happened and, and he got disillusioned because he was hurt. Something happened. And he says, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. I'm living for now. Just call me Matthew. Now, the other suggestion for this, and the one that I'm going to uh, maybe sort of lean towards a wee, but we don't have any real reason for this, but this is the one I'm leaning towards, is that it was Jesus who changed his name. It was Jesus who changed the name and gave him a new name. Some prefer this because Matthew means gift. And there's a Matthew in here this morning who's just going, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I, yeah, I could work for that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Now, that doesn't really fit the narrative that I just gave you of the angsty kind of young man who goes, oh, I've been hurt. I've been offended. Don't call me Levi. Call me the gift. Doesn't really fit. And certainly it wouldn't have been a name that anyone else would have given Levi. No one was calling the traitor tax collector a gift. He takes gifts. He takes liberties, but he's certainly not a giver of gifts. He's not a gift to the people. He's a thief. He's a traitor. But Jesus, like an artist, sees the masterpiece that could be revealed, what he was going to turn Levi into. He says, listen, I'm going to make you into a gift. I'm going to turn you into Matthew. And of course, Matthew goes on to write the gospel of Matthew, which has been blessing people for two millennium. What a gift is Matthew. What a gift he became to the church. And the best bit is Matthew wrote his gospel for the Jewish people that he had turned his back on. And so he ended up being a great gift for the Jewish people that he had wronged. who hated him so much. I think that's beautiful what Jesus can do in our life. Now, that's typical of Jesus. That's typical of Jesus. He likes to rename people. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee? He calls them the sons of thunder. Or, 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 or Simon, he, he renames Peter, and we know the story about that and the name behind that. So he, then he calls Levi, Matthew, a gift. I know what I'm going to turn you into. I know what's going to happen. Come and follow me. And so he gets up, he packs up everything, and he follows Jesus. Immediately he gets up. He's everything that he sacrificed his friends for, his family for, his safety for, he walks away from it to follow Jesus. And we spoke last week about the cost of following Christ, of leaving it all behind. But what he does next is really interesting. Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So the response of Matthew is to have a party in his house. There seems to be a great crowd in his house. It seems that he has had an opulent lifestyle, which means he's robbed a lot of people a long time. 
and he invites his tax collector friends. These guys wouldn't have had many friends outside of the circle, so they stuck together, and they seemed to have had a few other people round about them who came in for the party. I still can't quite figure out, I'll be honest. I've been looking at this, I still can't quite figure out why the Pharisees are there. I, I can't understand it. Maybe they were walking past the house and they popped their head in, they could see the party, they could smell the food, they could hear the music, and they, they popped their head in. I don't know. Or perhaps Matthew invited them, but that doesn't make any sense. But why invite the people who hate you? And I don't understand why they would even accept that invitation because these men are so concerned with their image and so concerned with how people think of them and their reputation that accepting an invitation to a tax collector's house would be like the worst thing that they could imagine. There's no way they're going to go near that house. There's no way they're going to want people to think or mistake them for being part of that gathering. Now, the reason for that is for the Jews eating a meal had this connotation of real intimacy. You know the scripture in Revelation uh, 3. Uh, verse 20, Jesus is speaking to the church and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, um, uh, sorry, if anyone open, open the door, I'll come in and sup with him. I'll eat with them. I'll have an intimate meal together. We'll fellowship together. It's a brilliant picture of Jesus speaking to a church and saying, look, listen, you've excluded me. You've left me on the outside. But if you're going to bring me in, if you're going to bring me in and make me a part of the church, then it's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be authentic. I don't want to be a token gesture in your church. I don't want your sermons just to be self-help seminars with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on the end to make it sound spiritual. I don't want theological logical uh, lectures where at no point is there any real relationship with Jesus expressed, where there's no joy or where there's no love. And Jesus, when he says, I'll come in and I'll sup with you, he's saying, I want real relationship. And so it's important that when Jesus comes in and accepts this invitation from Matthew to have this meal, that's what's happening. It's built on the idea that uh, if I were to eat a slice of cake and you eat a slice of the same cake, that cake bonds us. We're, we're joined together. That, that the same thing that makes up part of who I am makes up part of who you are, and it's, we're joined together. And so to eat a meal together meant to share a deep uh, friendship, a deep relationship. It was special to be invited to eat with someone. So then the question comes, verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you eating with the worst of the worst? Why are you eating with the scum of the earth? And why is there other sinners in there as well? I love how that was how much they hated Matthew. That's how much they hated this group of people Jesus was associating with. That, that there's tax collectors, <laughs> and then there's sinners. So, I mean, they're even worse than a group of sinners. The answer is found in why Matthew had the feast. He threw it for Jesus. 
he threw it for him. It was like a farewell dinner, a farewell meal for the sake of evangelism. It seems to me that Matthew wants to show these people that he worked with, these tax collectors, that, that were his social circle, that were his family, that were uh, the only people that he had a connection with because everyone else had turned their back on him. It was his family. It was his people. And, and he wants them to see his new faith. They want to see, look, I'm different now. And I need you to see it. And I need you to understand it. I want to show you why I'm different now. And he, so he's leaving their lifestyle. He's leaving their sphere of work. He's leaving that arena. He's going to be following Jesus wherever Jesus goes. And yes, they'll spend a lot of time in around Capernaum. But he's different now. He's not going to be in that group anymore. And he throws this final meal to introduce his friends to Jesus. He's the reason I'm different now. He's the reason I'm giving up all this and going out and following him. I, I'm going to be stepping out of this picture and stepping into something different. Matthew, Levi, he understands that he's going to have different social opportunities now. He understands that he's not going to have the same opportunities with these group of people that he's working with anymore. And so he's determined, I'm going to finish strong. I'm going to finish strong. This is a good friend. I've got to get a chance to share Christ with my friends. And I'm not leaving anything to chance. I'm making sure that they know why I'm different now. I'm making sure that they know. I'm not going to just hope that they see, oh, I'm different and they figure it out. I'm going to tell them. And I'm going to invite them in. And I'm not going to waste this chance. The Pharisees, the scribes, they would not have done this. In fact, compare Matthew's style evangelism, which is inviting people into my house, share my meals, share my company, share my friendship, share my jokes. And by the way, whenever you're here, you can't help but ignore the other man who's in this room because Jesus is here. That's his style of evangelism. By being around me, I will introduce you to this other man in my life. I'm going to introduce you to Christ. I'm going to introduce you to the one who has made this difference in my life. Compare that to the Pharisees' method of evangelism. How did they do it, or how did they not do it? Because they didn't think that Gentiles or tax collectors should be in your house, never mind anything else. These religious folks, I guess they, they might have done their evangelism by pointing the finger at people. They're the bad people. They're, don't be like them. Be like these guys. Don't be like these guys. So apologies to the people who I just pointed to. Or am no, I'm sure. um, Don't be like them. Don't be like them. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're sinners. They're tax collectors. They're they're the people you shouldn't want to talk to. They're the people, and that's how they went about their lives, getting angry, getting uptight, getting judgmental, and apart from being rude, here's the problem: nobody's ever going to want to be like you if that's how you go about things. No one's ever going to be attracted to anything that you would have for them. I mean, why would someone want to be around a prune like that? Why would someone want that kind of lifestyle? There's nothing attractive about it. Uh, the perfect example is, if you want to flick over a page to chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, we have a story about Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. Uh, and uh, he heals this man with a withered hand. And he says, stretch out your hand. But 
the, the Pharisees, again, they're in this field. They kind of just pop up everywhere. <laughs> they're following Jesus around. And he goes, he healed on the Sabbath. And when you read verse 11 of chapter 6, we read that they are furious, furious that Jesus would dare to heal on the Sabbath. They couldn't give themselves the room to be happy that God did something amazing. They couldn't be happy to be or, or be amazed at what they had seen. When was the last time they had seen a miracle? When was the last time they uh, were able to pray or say something and a guy was healed? I'm going to go out and let and say, never, never. But they just saw a healing and they're angry instead of joyful. Instead of being amazed, instead of being awestruck, till they begin to plot against Christ. Nobody, here, here's what I've noticed. What, what I've seen is that religious people are very often the most narrow-minded and hardest to be around people in the world. And religion is such a barrier to really getting to know Christ. Because there's a few rules, there's a few regulations, and we think we're so good. But the problem with these kinds of people is that you don't look at a grumpy stickler for the rules and go, I want to be like him. I want to be like that kind of guy. I want to be narrow-minded. I want to come across as a bigot. I really would love to. I'm tired of people liking me. I'd really like to go for a change of personality. But Matthew, on the other hand, has such a beautiful way with him. It's so natural. Guys, can I introduce you to Jesus? Can I explain to you why my life is different now? Why it's going to be different? Why there are these changes being made in my life? I, want, I still want this relationship. I still want our friendship. I still want it, but I need you to understand I'm different now. And I love his bringing people in and having dinner and introducing Jesus. I think it's a beautiful method, a beautiful way of evangelizing. And it's a way that if you're not comfortable speaking or, or comfortable, you can bring friends in. You can bring neighbors in. You can have a cup of coffee. You can do that. Verse 31. Jesus answers them, the Pharisees, saying, well, look, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus, he, he speaks up for Levi. He speaks up for, for this man who's got, undergone such this radical change. And he says, I'm going to leave it on. I'm going to follow you. Now, it's an obvious point that he makes, is it not? People who are sick need a doctor. Those who are not sick don't need a doctor. We'd all agree with that. But you see, sinners and sick people have a lot in common. Sinners and sick people understand that they have a need. You get saved the way sick people get better. You have to admit that you have a problem, and then you have to seek help from the person who can fix it. You go to a doctor, you, you sh reveal and you confess the symptoms and what's wrong. There's a diagnosis made, and then he prescribes something for you. Remember the story of a man sitting in a waiting room of, of a doctor's and uh, 
that he was starting to make people around him feel very uncomfortable. Because every now and again, he would just mutter, oh, I hope I'm really sick. I hope I'm really sick. I hope I'm really sick. And people were kind of looking, kind of going, oh, well, I hope he's not really sick. <laughs> but it was starting to freak people out a wee bit. And there was this kind of sphere of uh, uh, isolation sort of forming around him. To the GP receptionist, kind of came over to him and says, sir, like, listen, I, I have to ask, why are you so eager to be unwell. And he looks up at her and he says, well, it's really simple. I would hate to feel this bad and for there to be nothing wrong with me. And some of you are thinking, okay, well, that's really profound. These are probably the men in the room. And ladies, you are probably thinking, typical man, he probably just had the sniffles or he just had man flu or something. It's not real. But sometimes we have to go to the doctors and say, doc, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know. I just know I'm not right. I just know that there's something not quite right inside me. And he'll assess and he'll give you a diagnosis and hopefully you can get sorted with the right treatment quickly enough. As a sinner, what we have to do is we have to admit to the great physician who is Christ that we are in need of forgiveness and salvation. We know we're not right. We can get away so far by blaming everything. Well, I'm only angry because they are wrong, because they made me angry. I have a short temper because it's them who provoked me. I I have this bitterness or I have this guilt because other people have kind of inflicted this on me. I'm a victim of their sickness. I'm a victim of their sinfulness. But there comes a point when you realize I can't blame everyone for everything all the time. There comes a point when you realize, no, there's something internal, there's something inside me, and we may not always understand what that is, but we know enough that it's not right. There is something wrong inside of us, and so we get the diagnosis, and we come to Christ, and we realize it's sin, and sin is separating us from Him, and He prescribes grace to dispense it freely by faith in Him. And the symptoms that we see are caused by that separation from God. Our rejection of God, our preference to be the king of our own lives, our preference to do our own things above his things. But the cure then is to reverse that. Rather than rejecting God as king, is to accept God as king, to take him on as Lord and Savior, to come and find that forgiveness of sins through grace, which is like the antibiotics that come flooding through our system that keep us from God. But of course, there are some people, and I bet you can think of one or two, who never like to admit they're sick, right? Never. You know, you say to them, you know, how are you? I'm fine. Are are you fine? (laughs) I'm fine. Mm. You seen someone about that? (coughs) About what? (laughs) With a name for people like that. They're called dead people. Well, they'll be dead eventually, okay? If they don't (laughs) get it seen to. Because what happens when you keep ignoring the symptoms? The disease takes over. And then there's a price. There's a name for people who consistently refuse to admit their fallenness from God, to admit their need of God. We call them spiritually dead people. Paul said that you're dead in trespasses and sins, and unless people realize their true condition, 
it's always going to be really hard to convince them that they need the great physician. That's why Jesus says, I've not come for the righteous. I've not come for you Pharisees. I've not come for people who think that they're sorted, who refuse to believe that it's an internal problem, who think that just by following rules and regulations, it's going to be enough. I, I can't do anything for you because you refuse to admit that you're sick. I'm here for those who know that they're not good enough. I'm here for those who know that they don't match up. I, I'm here for the people who know that there's something wrong deep down inside of them. I don't know if you've ever met someone who says, look, I, I love to come to church, but you know, I've got so many problems. I've got so many issues. I've got so many things going on. I, I, I wouldn't fit in. Wrong. You'd be a perfect fit. None of us are worthy either. All of us have got stuff going on. All of us have got scars. All of us have wee bits of messiness in our lives that we're still trying to work through. And God's still working in our lives. God's still molding us. God's still working in us. You're more than welcome to join us. Come, messy. Come as you are. That's the point of coming to Christ. Jesus will mean nothing to people who cannot see that they need a Savior because that's who he is. Jesus is the Savior. And that's why Jesus says, look, I'm not here for you guys, but it's why I'm in here with these tax collectors and sinners because they know they need me. Skip ahead with me into chapter six. We're skipping over some lots of really good stuff that I don't think we'll be able to come back to, but turn over to chapter six, verse 12. Because then um, after he heals the man with the withered hand, he, he goes up uh, out, out to the mountain to pray. Uh, and all night he continues in prayer to God. And when they came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So Jesus has this group of people and now he's identifying 12 from that group. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James and son, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who was called the Zealot and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Four times we get a list of the disciples. We get it in Matthew, Mark, Luke and Acts. In all four lists there are three things that are always consistent. Number one, Peter always comes first. Number two, Judas Iscariot always comes last. And number three, uh, James always comes before his brother, John. Here's the list of the men that he chose to be in his inner circle. Here's the, the list of misfit fishermen from the sticks in Galilee and the zealots and the tax collectors that Jesus chose to mentor and disciple and then release uh, to, to, to launch the church by the power of the Spirit come the day of Pentecost. Any PR consultant would have said, bad choice, Jesus. This is totally the wrong group to work with. These guys together, you may want to think twice. They'll kill each other. The zealot and the tax collector will, will draw blood from each other before they work together. The PR company might say, but there is one good choice in there. There's one guy who we think we really should put in charge. He should be the face of the movement. He's more sophisticated. He's more educated. He's the white-collar choice. Judas Iscariot. 
Judas comes from a little town called uh, Kirioth, where the educated were, were based down south. The rest of the Beverly Hillbillies wouldn't compare to who Judas was. He's sophisticated. He's trusted. They made him the treasure. They made him the guy who looked after the money. And we know what happened to him, of course. He was a traitor. But I think, and I think I'm right when I think this, I think that we should all be very encouraged by the list of names who are on that screen. We should be very encouraged by the list of people on that screen. Because I look at that list and I can relate to Peter. I don't think I could relate to a high-flying, educated scholar who outthinks me at every turn, who lived a wonderful life. I don't think I could, but I can relate to Peter. I can lose my temper. I can get fiery at times. I can relate to Thomas, who can be bold and yet also have doubts in the same lifetime. I can relate to Nathaniel. I can go with, with, with their activities and their tendencies. Uh, even in Judas, I, I can see parts of myself in that where I think, God, this is not the right thing. You should be doing something else. Your focus is on the wrong thing. I get frustrated and, and sometimes fall out with our Savior and go, God, this is not how I think it should be. And I'll be honest, my story isn't like Matthew's. He's maybe the one who I can identify with the least. My story isn't necessarily one of broken ties with family and broken ties of community. That's not my story, but maybe it's yours. And that's what makes this so awesome. This is what makes it so brilliant. I'm encouraged that Jesus chose these men. He went out of his way to recruit these men. Because I look at that team and I go, right, well, if they can make it, I can do it. Oh God, if you can use those guys, you can use us. Happy days. Happy days. I don't need to be perfect. Because you didn't use perfect people. You choose the foolish things of the world. And I can do that. Lord, here I am. Send me. Because if you're looking for the foolish things of the world to change the world, right, well, no bigger fool than me. No bigger misfit than me. No bigger guy who doesn't quite always get it right than me. And you might want to say, well, actually, you know, Jeff, no, no, that's not for me. I'd rather join a group a wee bit more erudite. I'd rather join a group a wee bit more brilliant. Well, fine. But just know there are exceptions to the rule. God has chosen the foolish things. There's not many mighty. Not many noble who are called. He didn't say not any mighty or not any noble are called. There are notable figures in history who stand out as brilliant, godly men, educated, well-resourced, well-funded, people who would make sense to go, God, okay, yeah, it makes sense that you choose them. There are exceptions to the rule. But I look at this, and I think if God can take these 12 guys, let, let's say 11, let's take Judas Iscariot out of it. If he can take these 11 and do amazing things with them, what could he do with 111? What could he do with 1,100? What could he do with 11 churches in Newton Arts or, or 26, 27 churches in Newton Arts? What will he want to do through your life this week? I don't know. But I think it would be fun to find out. I wonder, 
Are you prepared to follow him this week? Are you going to let the, the um, skeletons in your past or the imperfections and inconsistencies of today prevent God from working in you and revealing in you the masterpiece that he wants you to be? God has a plan for your life. Every single one of you, he has a plan for your life. Do not let what is happening right now deter you or let you think that that is not part of God's plan. He is sovereign. And believe the verse when he says, all things work together for good. Doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. Doesn't mean everything's going to be enjoyable. It doesn't mean we always see the results immediately. But God is doing something. He's doing something in your life. Trust him in that. Keep following him. Keep pursuing him. Keep trusting in him. The, the potter knows what he's doing when he's shaping the clay. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say to you, here I am. Send me. Here we are. Send us, Lord. We fit the bill. We fit the description. We've got our doubts. We've got our, 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 our bouts of anger, speaking ahead of turn or speaking out of turn. Sometimes you want to call fire down on our enemies like the sons of thunder. We have all these tendencies. We have all these insecurities and inconsistencies. Sometimes we're like the Pharisees and the scribes. But Lord, oh, the patience that you have with us as you work with us, as you work in us to reveal the masterpiece that you see that could be revealed in us if we follow you, if we leave it all behind and follow you. We thank you, Lord, that you take people with sin and shame and skeletons in the closet and turn them into Matthew's gifts to bless the church. Lord, maybe there's some in this room this morning and they class themselves as religious. They see themselves as good people, but as yet they don't follow you. They don't walk in obedience to you. They still refuse to confess any sinfulness before you. Lord, reveal it to them and then extend to them that invitation to come and be made whole and to follow you. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us with this word. Amen.